1 Corinthians chapter 5. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to break up high school and middle school just because of the subject matter in 1 Corinthians 5, and then the last section of 1 Corinthians 6 dealing with sexual immorality. So I'm not going to have like a lot of introduction. We're basically going to read and dig in. I will simply say that I think, and I've said this many, many times in here, I think the issue, the topic of sexual immorality, gender, sexuality as a whole is just really a major topic that we are dealing with. And when I say we, I mean, yes, we, all of us, but you're bearing the greatest brunt of that attack and assault. The world wants to shape you and form you and inform you and indoctrinate you, especially in regards to sexuality. And so when we come to sections of the Bible like this, that's why I love preaching through the Bible, by the way, because this is not something that I invented or created, or I'm like, hey, we need to talk about this topic. That's really good and important. And churches should do that. We should address things as they come up. But we're just working our way through this letter of 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul has written to this church. And this is just one of the topics that he needs to discuss that's an issue here in the church of Corinth. And so I love when you just come to things naturally like this and you get to wrestle with them and be helped by them. And so that's what we'll do tonight. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we will dig in. Starting in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay, so what's happening there most likely is his father has been remarried. This is not his mother, and so it's not incest per se. This man is apparently sleeping with his stepmom. So that's what's happening, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So stop right there real quick. So what Paul is basically saying is, he is present in spirit insofar as he is writing this letter and addressing this issue. So it would be like um, me going on a trip and saying, hey, uh, I'm supposed to be back in two weeks, but I heard that you guys beat up Jared Wise while I was gone. You do realize you can't do that. You would, you would fill my authority, right? So that's, that's what Paul is saying. Fill my authority. Understand that I am judging this situation even though I am not with you. I am with you in spirit. And so verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. That is, you couldn't live in the world if you're not supposed to be around those types of people. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother that is Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. That is, don't be friends with this person. 
That's pretty extreme, but we'll talk about it. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Help us to understand and apply these truths to our lives. And Father, help us to be honest as we, as we hear these things and as we think about even our own lives and the situations that are happening even now outside of this room. Father, we understand that we are coming into this place, but we live lives outside of this place. And maybe even lives that our parents and our friends might not even be aware of, lives that happen behind closed doors. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to convict us of our sin and give us a desire for your holiness and your righteousness. And Father, we trust and pray that you will do that by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Okay, so I have four things for us tonight. The first is this, the situation. So what exactly is happening here? So Paul in verse one says, it is actually reported. That is a really strong statement. He, he's essentially saying, okay, I, I've, I've heard this. I can't believe I've heard this, but I'm gonna have to address this, right? It's one of those kind of things of like disbelief. It's, it's actually reported. Well, what's actually reported? Two things. The first is obviously sexual immorality in the church. So the situation in particular is this young man who is sleeping with his stepmother. But I really want to ask why this is so bad. Because you might be thinking, well, duh, there's a man sleeping with his stepmom. So I don't just want to like think, okay, well, ooh, that's yucky. Why is that actually bad? Why is it that Paul looks at sexual immorality and thinks that it is not something that a believer should be involved in? Well, the answer comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is making this case that in Jesus Christ, you have been purified. You, you are a people in Jesus who have been washed. You are a people who have been cleansed of your sin, right? He tells them that they are the sanctified ones. That is, they have been plucked out of the world and placed into the church. They have been set apart from their old selves into a new self. They are those who have been justified. That is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God looks at Christ, condemns him, and grants the believer who has trusted in Christ by faith, Jesus' righteousness. So he looks at us and he sees us as his holy ones. And then Paul tells us that we are those who have been filled with the Spirit. So if these things, if you have been cleansed and washed, if you have been sanctified and justified, then that means you have been filled by the Spirit. And if you have been filled by the Spirit, Paul tells us that we are a holy temple. That is, we are the place where God's presence dwells. We have been made holy because of what Jesus has done. And so when we talk about sexual immorality, it's not just that it's icky or gross or something that we shouldn't do. It goes against who we are. That, that's the baseline of why sexual immorality is such a big deal to the believer. It's because it is the complete opposite behavior of who we have been made to be by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so it goes against the very basic principle of the gospel. So it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality, but then there's another thing. It's actually reported that this isn't even making you sad. So he says you ought to mourn. So apparently they're not very upset by this news of this guy that comes to church all the time and he is sleeping with his stepmom. They're, they're just going about their normal day. They're, they're worshiping. They're inviting him into worship. He's probably taking the Lord's Supper because there's a whole ordeal about the Lord's Supper here later on in uh, 1 Corinthians. But what Paul is really concerned with for these people 
in the fact that they're not mourning over this is he kind of concludes that they don't actually think it's that big of a deal. If they're not kind of freaked out by this, if they're not addressing it, or if they're not like condemning this man and asking him to repent, then Paul assumes that the whole church is really saying, uh, okay, well, sexual immorality isn't really that, that bad. Now, one of the reasons why the book of 1 Corinthians is so helpful to us today is because I think these are the same things that we have been doing for years and years and years and years in the church. We have been looking at things like sexual immorality, and because most of the time in churches, it's not like a man sleeping with his stepmom, it's things that are happening behind the scenes. It's things that are happening on a computer, it's things that are happening on a smartphone, it's things that are happening in a vehicle away from our parents. Those are the types of things that we can partake in and just continue living the Christian life. And and we get to a point where we're so desensitized by these things that maybe pulling up something on a smartphone is not even really that big of a deal to us anymore. It's just kind of a part of the Christian life, is that you struggle with this sin and you indulge in this sin, or you go too far every now and again and you just kind of ask forgiveness and do it again and ask forgiveness and, and do it again and again and again. Well, the same thing that is letting this happen in Corinth is the same thing that lets it happen today. We convince ourselves of our sin. We, we look at it and we say, well, it's really, it's really not that bad. Or everyone's doing it. That's like the mantra of peer pressure on TV shows. There's always like these scenes. You have no idea what Boy Meets, do you know what Boy Meets World is? Okay, boy, okay, calm down. Um, so like in Boy Meets World, there'll be like at an assembly and they're talking about peer pressure and it's the phrase, well, everyone's doing it. And they're usually talking about drugs, right? Like, like everyone does it. Well, that's what we actually do. We actually convince ourselves that this is a part of living the Christian life, that we can, we can do this and, and we, can, we can be okay. But Paul thinks that this situation is so serious that he tells the church that this person needs to be removed. And obviously this person stands for a real human being, but as a whole, this person stands for, for sin. This person needs to be removed from your fellowship. So Chelsea had surgery on Monday. And as I was thinking about all of this and thinking, like, is there any illustration that I can think of of like removing sin from our lives or from a church? And I, there was this moment where Chelsea, she hates getting IVs. She hates it. And the reason she hates it is because she basically has no veins that have, I don't understand. I think the veins go here and then they circle around her arm this way and come back here. And so nurses usually just like stick them and stick them and she is like in tears. And then inevitably they say, okay, well, we're going to have to put it in your wrist, and she hates it. And so I go to the recovery room. I'm sitting there. She's on drugs, and she's like, and she just lifts her arm up where it's so sad. It was so sad. She was so precious. Well, there's this IV in the crack of her wrist where you move it, and she just looks at it, and she just goes, (laughs) and just puts it down. Have you ever had an IV for like so long? that you're just like, you just want it out of your arm. So if you've never had an IV, you get to a point where you're just like, I want it out. And you just want to rip that thing out. It's, it's like a foreign thing in your body and you want it out. And the nurse, they're so sweet, but they'll come and they'll be like, can I make you more comfortable? And it's like, no, take it out. And then they'll come back and they'll be like, do you need more ice chips? I don't need your stinking ice chips. Take this IV out. Right? You just you want it out of your body so bad. At least that's how I feel, and I know that's how Chelsea feels. So if it's not you, that's fine. You're tough and a little sadistic. <laughs> but this is, this is like that, that hatred of this thing, like wanting this thing removed from your, your body, that's how the Bible confronts our sin. So listen to this. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, 
do not, so it's talking about a particular sin, sexual sin. It says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So it's thinking of an old sinful person pre-Christ being put off, taken away. Your sinfulness put in the garbage can and putting on the new self. Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24 says, put off your old self, that is, put it away, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, so putting off the old man, and then 1 Peter 2, 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So what Paul is saying and what Peter says in this, this last verse we just read is that as believers, we should see our sin as something that needs to be eradicated from our lives. We're not just looking at sin as something that's just kind of residual and we're just like, ah, oh, it's so annoying. The Bible tells us to hate it to want to rip it out of our arm, to be so fed up and so sick of our sin that we will do anything we can to throw it away. And so when Paul hears about this situation in this church, he's like, you're not even sad that this is happening? Like Believers at the most basic level are called to hate their sin. So that's the situation. Point two, believers are people who have been set apart from the world. So here's Paul's basis for saying why we should remove this person from the church. Believers are people who have been set apart from the world. So the reason that this man needs to be removed from the church is because the church is not the world, and we can't let the world think that it is. The church is not the world, and we can't let the world think that it is. All right? So the church, our mission is to testify to God's grace and our need of it. That is the whole purpose we have as we wait for Jesus to come back, is to testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and our need of it. And so when we deal with sin, honestly, we serve as a witness to the world of what God desires to do through Jesus. And so essentially we say that we are sinners, but we don't rejoice in that truth, right? We're not proud that we're sinners. I, my father-in-law is a pastor. I think I already told you this, but he's a pastor in Cincinnati, and he always has really fun stories, really, really fun stories. Well, he took his um, church on a trip. It was like a fall festival thing for like the day, and and one of the people there bought a hat. It was just like a flat bill hat, and it just said in massive letters, sinner, like not saved by grace or anything else, just just sinner. And my father-in-law was like, you know, I don't really know what was going through this person's head when they bought a hat that literally just says sinner. Now, the reason I say that is because we want to be honest about the fact that we are sinners and we struggle with sin and we fight against sin, but we don't rejoice in the fact that we are sinners. Our sin and the temptation to sin is not the thing that makes us happy. It's not the thing that gives us joy in, in life. What we rejoice in is knowing that Jesus has died for our sin. That's the thing that makes us happy. That's the thing that motivates us. That's what gives us joy. That's what helps us to go day in and day out is knowing that, yes, I am a sinner, but Jesus has died for it. I'm not held accountable to my sin anymore. 
And that's why Paul tells them to put this man outside of the church, because he is living in sin, and he wants this man to be turned over to his sin so he can look back and see the church that he was a part of and think, oh my goodness, that was better than my sin. The only hope I had in life was what the church stood for. The only hope I had was the gospel that was being preached there. And so that's his hope. He's not saying, get him out. This is ridiculous. He can never come back. Paul is actually hoping that this man will go out, be given over to his sin, and desire redemption that comes through Jesus. He's hoping this man will feel the weight of his sin and realize that there is no hope in the world whatsoever. And so remember, last week I I said that the way we live can validate or invalidate our faith. The way we live as believers can validate or invalidate our faith. Well, what happens when the way we're living invalidates our faith? Well, Paul tells the church that when you see that, someone who is living in a way, not like someone who is struggling against their sin and fighting it, but someone who has been given over to their sin. They're not sad about it. It's just their way of life. They're a Christian, yes, but they're just embracing their sin full on, and they're not sorry about it. Well, what Paul says as the church is, you can't take part in someone's self-deception. You can't let this person believe that they are okay with God if they are not willing to repent of their sin. You can't be a part of their self-deception. And so you as the church, you as a believer, you have to do something about this. And so Paul is telling us all that unrepentant, continual sin implies that a person's faith may not be real. Your sin, if it is not causing you great sorrow, if you are continuing in it without repentance, that may mean that you're not actually a believer. And so, yes, faith is the only thing that saves us. Absolutely. Nothing will get you to heaven other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, not only do we learn that faith is a gift, but good works are a gift also. And so when we are not living in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, it indicates that maybe we're not actually believers in the first place. And the hope is that we will put this person out and God will save them because of it. That they won't, be, they won't be tricked by their self-deception. A church will actually say, hey, we think you may not be a believer. You, you may not actually trust in Jesus. I mean, when you're told something like that, that's going to make you angry. It's going to be really hard to hear. But hopefully the Lord will use that to draw you to himself, to, to cause you or that person to be honest. Okay, so number three, how sin works in the church and in your life. So he tells us to remove this person, right? And he tells us because we can't let the world think that this is how we are. But then he also tells us, like, you need to know how sin works inside of the church, but also in your life. What he tells us, he uses this illustration, and essentially what he is saying is that allowing just a little sin into the church or into your life will slowly corrupt the whole thing. So Chelsea has gotten into uh, making homemade bread, and so someone gave her this, this starter Essentially, it's this living thing in a jar. It's kind of milky looking and it's alive. And sometimes it like will creep up and be like, like whatever. I don't know. It's living and it's in our refrigerator. Sometimes it's on our counter. I don't really, I don't ask questions. I just eat the cinnamon rolls or the bread that she makes from them. What I do know though, is that what is in the jar is alive. It's an organism. It's living. And so what Chelsea will do is she will get her, her mixer and she'll put in some flour and some other things that I have no idea what's happening. Again, I just eat the stuff. And then she takes this bubbling jar of whatever it is over to the mixer and she just dumps a little bit in. 
like just a little bit, and it splashes into it, and then she mixes it up real good, and, and then she puts it in the oven, but she doesn't turn the oven on, and it, it grows. This is Paul's whole illustration. Our sin is like what's in Chelsea's starter jar. Just, just a little teeny tiny bit of it in, infects the whole thing. And so when we think about sin in the church or sin in our life that we don't address, it has the ability to corrupt the whole thing. Now, that should really make us think. Like, like seriously, think just a moment right now in your life. What is some sin in your life that is not being addressed by you? The reason I say that is not to try at this moment to convince you that you're not a believer, but, but to help you, to, to cut it off before it corrupts the whole thing. And this is Paul's whole point when he looks at this church and he's like, wait, y'all haven't said anything to this guy? Don't you realize that this is going to destroy the church? Like, that's how serious it is. Letting this man do this has major consequences. Letting this happen in your life unquestioned or unattended to has major consequences for your life. And so Paul's whole point in using this illustration is that we have to be really radical with our fight against sin. I mean, he tells them, hey, you know, the leaven stuff, you, like, you got to like throw it out. You have to throw it away. A little bit will leaven the entire lump. And you're unleavened people, right? So here, let's, the illustration, you have been made holy because of what Jesus has done for you. You have allowed unholiness to creep into this holy thing. And so you need to chop off that unholiness because it will corrupt the entire thing. And so we have to be radical, right? If, it's, if it gains a foothold in our life, it's going to require drastic steps to overcome it, right? And so sexual sin is one of those things that contaminates our life. Sexual sin is one of those things that we can convince ourselves is okay. Why? Well, this is, this is why I wanted to split up middle school and high school, because sexual sin always feels good in the moment. Right now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you are sleeping with a guy or with a girl or any number of things, but any sort of sexual sin that you allow into your life will make you feel good for a moment. Momentarily, you will feel good about that thing. And, and that's why sexual sin is one of those things that can contaminate us so quickly if we don't address it, because it allows us to convince ourselves that this is okay because it makes me feel good. And so what Paul would say is, as you think about removing sexual sin from your life, the radical nature of it is that you're going to have to address the issue like at its core. It's not, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend anymore. No, it's, it's not that simple. It's, I'm not going to be alone with them anymore. I'm not going to ride in a car with them anymore. I'm not going to go upstairs when their parents are downstairs anymore. Or in fact, I'm not going to date this person anymore, which is the best possible choice. Remove it from your life. If you're thinking about something like pornography and it's on your phone, you don't take your phone into the bathroom. You don't have your phone in the room at night. You, you get radical with the way that you address these things. And here's, here's the thing that we do. Because we all have social media, we can scroll and we can scroll faster or slower and we can convince ourselves that we're not actually indulging in things that we shouldn't indulge in. And so maybe it's eliminating social media from your life. Or something like TikTok, because guess what? You're not responsible for things that just pop up, right? Uh, yes, you are. And so we have to remove the cause of sexual sin from our lives. We have to take radical steps, drastic measures. That's what Paul is calling us to. A little leaven will leaven the entire lump.
And so that's not only in the church, that's in our own lives. And that goes with any sin, but in particular, as we're thinking now, sexual sin has that cause in our life. It, it corrupts us slowly but holistically, right? It doesn't just affect one little part of your life. It affects your whole life, all right? Maybe you're saying, I, like, I can't do that. I, I've tried. And I'm not assuming that everyone is struggling with any certain thing, but I am assuming that some of you are. You're, you're teenagers, so maybe you're thinking, I, I, I can't do that. The reality is, is what Paul reminds them of is you, you can. Why can you do that? Not because you're good enough, not because you're strong enough, but, but because of Christ, your Passover lamb. He has cleansed you. So why does Paul mention the Passover in this moment? Well, do you remember when the Passover happened? Right before the Exodus, right? All right, so what did the Passover insinuate? Well, it was blood. And the blood protected them from the judgment of God for, for all the firstborns. All of the firstborns were saved so long as the Passover blood was over the doorpost. Well, what happened immediately after the Passover? God delivered them from captivity. What Paul is saying is because of Jesus, your Passover lamb, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from your captor sin. Why can you fight your sin? Why can you put off sexual immorality? because it doesn't rule you anymore. It's not your master anymore. Jesus is your Lord, not your sin. And so every single one of us, if we have been saved, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been given the ability to fight and to put off our sin because it does not rule us anymore. We have been set free from captivity to fight. We have been released to fight against our sin. And fighting our sin is evidence of our salvation. And so if you're thinking, yeah, I am kind of struggling with some of these things, but I don't want to be, well, that is good evidence right there that you are actually a believer, that you have a desire to fight these things, even as you struggle and at times fail in them. And then finally, what's at stake? So what, like, why, why should we care about this? Why do you care about this? Why are we talking about this? Maybe some of you are like, I'm not dealing with any of this, and so it's kind of awkward for me. I just want to be super blunt with you. If you're not dealing with it now, you will. Like this is something that will come into your life at some point. And, and maybe it's when you're married. So what's at stake? Well, what's at stake is, is this. How can we live as a holy people in the world if we don't value and put on holiness? Why do we want to fight sexual immorality? Why do we want to say no to the things that momentarily feel good to us? Because we're called to be holy. And if we don't value and pursue holiness for our lives, then what are we even doing here? Again, let me, let me remind you that God hasn't just saved us. He left us here. You do realize that a part of God's plan could be when you get saved, you just go to heaven. But that's not the plan. The plan is that we get saved, that he draws us to himself, and then he leaves us here. Why would he leave us here? Because we're a part of his plan of redemption. We're a part of his plan of saving other people. We're called to be an outpost of holiness in a wicked world to shine the light of the gospel into a dark world. And so when we act like the world, we're communicating to the world that sin is okay. When, when we indulge in our sin, when we convince ourselves that our sin is okay, we're basically telling the world that the gospel is fake, that, that they don't need a savior, that their sin is okay, right? If, if they're looking at people who claim to be Christians, but they live really the way that they live, why do they need to be a Christian? They can just keep doing what they're doing if you 
get to do what you do. There's nothing special or different about Christians. But the truth is, there is something special and there is something different about Christians. So when we address the sin in our churches and the sin in our own lives, we're actually showing the world that we're serious about God's call to holiness. Really one of the most powerful testimonies that we have to the truth of the gospel is an ongoing fight against sin. One of the most powerful testimonies that we have to an onlooking, wicked, sinful world is looking at ourselves and saying, no. And then at the end of, of chapter 5, he, he tells them, hey, don't, don't even like, have anything to do with this person. Like, don't, don't even have a meal with them. Don't eat with a person that's like this. Purge the evil from your life. Well, what does that mean? It means that we don't entertain our sin, that we don't befriend our sin, that, that we don't become buddies with our sin, even if it's secret and no one else knows about it. All right, we're called to hate sin as God hates sin. And of course, the, the thing goes, we don't hate the sinner, we hate the sin. That's absolutely true. But we hate sin so much that we're willing to do radical things against it, hoping that good will come from it. Like, we live in a world that celebrates and encourages sexual immorality. If you are on social media more than 30 seconds, you know that the world loves sexual immorality. It's one of its most favorite things. I mean, you can drive around Columbus and just look at billboards, and you will find things that are trying to sell and celebrate sex. And so as you go from this place and you think about these things, I just want you to be really honest with your life. Have you let these things seep into your life? And if you claim to be a believer, what Paul would ask of you is that you take drastic steps to rid these things from your life. Now, here's a few ways that you can do that as you think about it. You can talk to your parents, and I'm gonna just go ahead and tell you that's gonna be a really difficult conversation, but it's one you need to have. But before you do that, I mean, you've got leaders here that can help you think through those things. We wanna help you. I would assume that most of us have dealt with these types of things from one degree to another. And so take steps to rid yourself of these things because you will find as you continue to struggle with them and you never actually address them in your life, that they will consume you more and more and more and more over time. And so you have the opportunity now as a young person to cut these things off before they take root in your life. 